My guest today is Dr. Roger McFillin, a clinical psychologist, executive director at the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health, and host of the Radically Genuine podcast. We discuss the wide-scale misdiagnosis of human emotions as mental illness, the overprescription of psychiatric drugs, and the healing power of mindfulness and meditation. Dr. McFillin is one of my favorite people to listen to and brings a wealth of knowledge to these subjects. Whether you're dealing with struggles on your own or know somebody who is, this episode is well worth your time. Stay tuned. Dr. McFillin, thank you for joining me today. I, I really appreciate this, this time you're giving me. Jason, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I told you beforehand, but uh, a few months ago, I did an episode where I talked about a little bit about, about my anxiety problems that I had as a younger man. I went through a, a period of a really, a really dark depression, um, which resulted in just paralyzing anxiety. I was, you know, I went through a three month period where I was, I don't want to say delusional, but I, I feel like I was on the brink of something very, very bad uh, mentally happening to me. And uh, I talked about it a little bit and I had so many people reach out and they were like, hey, you have to talk to Dr. McFillin on, on, on your show. Because the way that I conquered the depression and the anxiety was I, I did it without medication. I, I started setting goals for myself every day, um, like pushing beyond the boundaries that in, my anxiety was setting for me. And it was simple stuff like, you know, I, I had this thing where I couldn't leave like a certain area the moment I got, you know, however many blocks away from my home, the anxiety would set in, you know, like it was like immediate. So I just started setting goals of like, okay, we're going to walk one extra block. We're going to walk, you know, and, and, and some days it was like, okay, I'm just going to take two steps beyond where I got yesterday. And then I got to a point where I was actually able to make it to the community center by my home. And I started getting back into exercising again and exercise completely wiped it out. And uh, so I want to, I want to ask you about the prevalence of mental illness diagnoses, the overprescription of antidepressants and other, and other psychiatric meds. And, and really when did it all begin? I mean, just, just the, the explosion of it all. Well, first, I there's a couple of terms that I've just I don't use anymore. I think it's very misleading to talk about you know emotional behavioral problems as if they're illnesses like any other medical condition. So it's kind of a modern construction to talk about things in terms of like an illness that requires a, a drug for treatment. That's the modern allopathic medical world that we we live in. With generations have been conditioned to think that drugs are are healthcare. I also think it's problematic to call psychiatric drugs medicine as if they're medicinal and they're they're correcting something that is, you know, broken or there's a there's a malfunction or something that occurs in the body. And we have to be able to talk about this realistically. So first of all, emotional and behavioral problems, the ones that, you know, most typically people are going to experience have been part of the human experience since the you know, dawn of and dawn of, uh, of all humanity, right? It's, uh, it's part of our adaptive evolution. We can think about it biologically, evolutionarily, spiritually, uh, from an emotional perspective. Really, I think our emotions are gifts that have been passed down through generation, through ancestors, in order to survive and thrive. So they're generally indicators that there's something wrong in our life and that we have to pay attention to them. It's not surprising to me that you say, you know, I kind of overcame depression and anxiety without medicine, because if you look at the drugs, the outcomes are quite poor. Most people don't overcome depressive episodes. If not everybody, they don't overcome it because they took a pill. They overcome a depressive episode because they take steps to understand what is happening to them, to face, to solve problems, to push themselves through uh, just places in their lives where they may be really, really stuck. And even when it comes to what we would diagnose more severe mental illness, I think the category of that is like schizophrenia or uh, somebody who might be experiencing a psychotic condition or might be manic. We still understand little about the origins of those conditions. It's not like we've identified that this is a brain disorder related to neurochemicals. And then if we take this drug, it balances neurochemicals. All of that is marketing propaganda. 
What we do know is that there may be some drugs in the short term that can stabilize someone who's in a serious episode, like they are delusional, they're hearing voices, seeing things that aren't there, or they're in what's called a, a manic state. So, um, you know, they're not sleeping, high energy, grandiose thoughts, uh, impulsivity, a number of things. And those are real conditions, but luckily those only affect a very small portion of the population. And historically, they've affected only a small portion of the population. Often when it comes to this most severe mental illness, some of our data going back to hospital records in the early 20th century suggest that, um, you know, for the most part, they're one episode, not chronic. Uh, they can often be related to substance abuse or maybe another medical condition that goes undetected. My concern is that the modern mental health psychiatric industry has aligned with the medical establishment to increase the prevalence rates of psychiatric diagnoses in order to increase their customer base. And they've been really, really successful at it. You know, you go from a, a, a population that's treated on psychiatric drugs, 2% or less generally, and you balloon it to over 20% of the, of the population, American population and adults are taking some one or multiple psychiatric drugs. And when we started doing that, everything has worsened because we've altered the way generations actually think about their own emotional and behavioral health, right? The chemical imbalance lies, which were again, marketing propaganda that if you're struggling with depression or anxiety or any kind of emotional problem, you can target them with a, a drug that acts on the brain that increases the availability of specific neurochemicals. And that in itself improves like emotional stability and well-being as if somebody had a biological vulnerability to those conditions. All those are lies and they have altered the way we have actually identified and related to our own emotional experience. And that's why I think you see us in a, amongst other things, I mean, there's other cultural factors, but it's why we see ourselves in a mental health crisis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, so when does when did this overprescription of of psychiatric drugs really begin? Because I, I'm a '90s kid, and I remember in the '90s, like every kid that I went to school with was on Ritalin, and it, it was so prevalent. And a lot of the guys that I knew who used Ritalin would sell it in the bathroom for you know fifteen dollars a pill to other kids, and it, it it was it was wild how many of my peers growing up were taking these you know, mind altering substances. Do, do we know when this really started and what the driver was behind it? I would say we can probably go back to 1987 when Prozac was approved for the general marketplace for adults and it became widely available and, and then promoted as like this happy pill. This was a combination of, you know, the drug companies working with the FDA and um, academics from major institutions in a misleading propaganda around uh, an SSRI, which is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is the first kind of antidepressant pill that is marketed to the general population. And what you just saw was a combination of that with direct-to-consumer advertising between the pharmaceutical companies and the United States media. They're the major funder of our a lot of news and and media so they can really kind of control the message they've really bought mainstream psychiatry 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 was a dying profession until they started aligning with the pharmaceutical companies to identify depression anxiety as as a brain illness and you saw it bloom throughout the 90s uh we've seen like a, a 1000 fold increase in the diagnosis of depression and when you start thinking about mental health as a, a brain disorder, like a medical condition, like any other, this biomedical movement ushered in a complete era, as I was, as I was talking about earlier, and they've been pushing it through their pharmaceutical sales, um, salespeople into primary care and other specialties, really pushing the number of people who can identify as having a wide range of conditions, ADHD being one of them. And they've used these DSM diagnoses to kind of balloon this and decrease stigma campaigns and, you know, funding other efforts like the major medical organizations or school curriculum amongst other advertising, you know, uh, measures when it comes to 
kind of controlling the education of our medical professionals. You know, they're going to fund the academics who are going to write the textbooks and publish this fraudulent and misleading uh, scientific findings around the drugs. They also, um, you know, all, all physicians require, you know, continuing medical education credits. So now you, you know, you fund those, you know, free medical education credits. It's, it's a large scale system that I call the sick care system. And it's extremely lucrative. And we are getting sicker. There is no doubt about it. And we become more dependent on their product, which has been the primary goal from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so have we seen an uptick in, say, um, you know, psychiatric drugs since the beginning of the, the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, it's been a dramatic increase yearly. So even before the pandemic, you just see each year their sales continue to increase. The number of people who identify with a mental health diagnosis increases. The amount of psychiatric drugs increases. But uh, yeah, it spikes during something like the pandemic, right? Because we're isolated and there's more fear and fear provocation. And, you know, we're kind of conditioned, mass conditioned. We go to our doctors if we don't feel well. And the doctors are just handing out those prescriptions like they're candy, you know, like without even providing informed consent. Over 80% of these drugs are prescribed in primary care settings by primary care doctors who aren't specialists in this area. And they certainly do not have a grasp of the the literature base, the science that supports their use, uh, the substantial risks, how they came to market. And they're not really strong at evaluating mental health problems. I mean, you cannot, you cannot evaluate somebody and understand what they're going through in eight to 10 minutes, which is the typical primary care appointment here in the United States. And so instead it's become a fast food style of healthcare where, you know, you come into a, an American healthcare center, you fill out these quick screening measures, and you know it's a it's a short conversation and it's a prescription in and out and it's obviously a very successful model for that industry and part of my purpose right now is to educate the public through my social media through podcasts that i'm going on through the radically genuine podcast is hey let's take a step back you have to understand what you're putting into your body what are the effects of this negatively what are the adverse reactions what do we now know and how can we fight back against this tyranny and it is medical tyranny and people are not receiving informed health care let alone a form of health care that's going to restore their health and well-being and instead it's just they've become legalized drug dealers so many of these uh medical professionals i do think covid was an awakening for many people to understand how corrupt the system is and we see that i mean and that's great uh because we know that we're going to have to transform the entire system especially in the mental health perspective like the manner in which we talk about it you know, even you come on here and you talk about it in terms of uh, mental illness and medicines, right? As if we have this clear identifiable illness and we have a drug that's medicinal. You don't go into a healthcare center and you don't get a blood test or a brain scan and say, hey, we've identified ADHD. Or you have a, you know, it looks like right now you have some major depressive disorder, right? You, we're, we're relying completely on uh, the self report of an individual who is struggling and struggling in life is normal. Mm. I mean, that's called being a human being. And we've just misrepresented what it means to be human, what it means to struggle. We're metal medicalizing like all aspects of being human. I, that's exactly the way that I felt for the longest time. It feels like, you know, every emotion that we feel has some sort of clinical diagnosis, you know, for, for something that's wrong with us. Right. And, you know, like in, in my own life, uh, you know, I've found that, you know, artists and myself, I, you know, we have a hypersensitivity to the things that are going on around us. Uh, you know, a lot of the people that I know and, and it, and it feels like we're designed that way for a reason because we're designed to, you know, I'm a writer. Some people are, you know, supposed to paint pictures or make music, but it, but it seems like there's been, um, there's been an effort to kind of numb that hypersensitivity and kind of put everybody into this very small box that conforms to like the way mainstream society wants everybody to to behave. But what happens when you do that is you you eliminate all the creativity, you eliminate all of the great things that that 
you know, people create because now they're just kind of down this moving down this one channel. And a lot of those people I've found were diagnosed with ADHD as children. I was assessed multiple times as a kid. And the only thing that got me out of being labeled ADHD was that I was able to sit and read a book for hours on end. So the, you know, the geniuses that were diagnosing ADHD were like, well, it's impossible for him to actually have ADHD because he can read, which is ridiculous. But, um, I want to talk about ADHD, you know, where, when was ADHD first established as a quote unquote disease or illness and what, what went into shaping the, the diagnosis? I mean, what's, what was the data set used in order to really establish what ADHD is and how it applies to people? Yeah. And unfortunately, when it comes to a lot of the diagnoses that enter into what's called the DSM diagnostic statistical manual, they're not really informed by sound science. Um, to answer your question quickly, the first time we saw uh, ADHD, which was ADD originally, was in uh, 1980. I think that's DSM-3. And the problem with this is that the Diagnostic Statistical Manual's original purpose was just to create some construct, a way of communicating what people see in clinical practice. And to be part of the general healthcare field, where we use categorical diagnoses for submission for insurance reimbursement. It was never meant to communicate it like they are other medical illnesses. So just broadly speaking, a way of communicating what is observed and treated in clinical practice. Now, now mostly boys with behavioral problems in school systems were conditions which met that umbrella. If you wanna go back decades and even centuries, it has always been, uh, you know, part of society is how to deal with behavioral problems in children. Um, especially when you think about the modern industrial age and the advent of the public school system, the public school system was designed to train factory workers, right? It was part of our growing industrial uh, country, United States, Canada, Western worlds, you needed people to be able to follow rules, deference to authority, obedience. That's why even the school systems were on, were on a, a bell system, right? Just like a, a factory was on a bell system at that time. So anyone who would stand out of that kind of norm of being able to follow rules, be disciplined, um, focus on boring novel tasks in order to increase production, you know, fell outside of that bell-shaped curve and they were ripe there for identification and uh, using modern inventions medically, you know, how can we improve the ability to get sustained workload and focus from people? So there was a lot of experiment experimentation that was done in like group homes or orphanages at that time as, as a way of trying to sedate uh, young boys. And so that condition, although we never have any strong ideology about it, although behavioral problems and focus problems are clearly, you know, part of, of living, what leads somebody to have a behavioral problem or lead someone to have struggles focusing in school can vary greatly from a, a learning disability to post-trauma, to sleep deprivation, to nutrient deprivation, to, to lack of a like structure or discipline in home, absentee parents, a worrier, someone's anxious. So you have all these potential influencers on why a kid might struggle, but you construct or create this diagnosis called ADHD and you just, you just slap that label on them and you use that as justification for a stimulant, which a stimulant, especially in the short term, can sedate, uh, subdue, you know, boys and girls who have a hard time sitting still in a classroom, which, to be honest with you, there's always going to be a percentage of people who have a hard time sitting in classroom, focusing on boring material from a teacher that they're not interested in. That's the diversity of being a human being whether it's you're just naturally active, maybe designed to, to be working with your hands in construction, connected to nature, uh, athletic. For a lot of people sitting in that, in that row, in that classroom, focusing on a teacher on things that are not interesting to you, it's a painful endeavor. And so to, to label them with ADHD is just one of many examples why this modern psychiatric industrial complex is so harmful to uh, you know, our collective humanity, 
because you're you're just you're drugging more and more people sending the message that there is something wrong with you and the truth of the matter is there isn't there's just a wide range of diversity there's some problems there's definitely problems with our school systems which the majority of these diagnoses kind of do originate from problems that exist in that setting and the science around it is so poor and so misleading that now we have generations who have used ADHD almost like it's an identity marker and have developed complete brands around the entire concept. So again, what starts with intentional, just a way of categorizing why someone may need some clinical help, rare diagnoses, not widely applied, becomes something that is widely applied to almost everybody without any form of, you know, science and evaluation or intervention. And it's really just to sell drugs. I mean, right now, almost anyone can get on a website, take a quick screener, lie, and get stimulants sent to your home. If that's not enough to see that this is, uh, this is industry manipulation to sell their product, I don't know what is. You know, I don't know what is. And does that deny that, some people might have more difficulty focusing on things in the, in their life. No, it doesn't deny that at all. That can be a real problem for a lot of people. Now we have screen addiction and phone addiction amongst a lot of other things. And that hijacks our brain. And it hijacks their brain to a certain form of stimuli that's really engaging. So then other more novel, boring tasks that you need to do sometimes to com to be effective at work or to be effective at school, that, get, that gets pathologized as if there's something wrong with your with your brain. And that's, you know, that's not the case at all. The brain, the attention, like anything, is designed to focus on the most relevant stimuli. We could also train ourselves to be able to shut down the brain, you know, through meditative practice and mindfulness and taking away or decreasing the amount of time that we're on phones or other screens. There's so many avenues to help people be more grounded, centered, present focused. But, you know, this diagnosis stops that investigation. And, uh, you know, I have such a problem with it because I just see again, how it's being used to manipulate younger generations. Absolutely. Now, you know, a lot of the guys that I knew growing up who were taking stimulants or prescribed them by a doctor ended up moving on to other stimulants as they got older, street drugs, methamphetamine, cocaine. Is there, are there any studies on this? Is there, is there anything to that? Do, are these early, you know, these, these stimulants that are prescribed at an early age, are they leading to illicit drug use down the road? Yes. And I, I call it a gateway drug because when you start introducing these chemicals into a developing brain and in a developing body, the brain is always seeking homeostasis. So you're adapting to them. And dependence is created. And you actually need more and more of the dose of the substance in order to get the same results. Also think about the messages that you're sending, that the way you think or the way you feel, there is something wrong with you, so take this pill. So you start even conditioning somebody to believe that they have to seek out external substances, chemical compounds in, in order to alter their experience. So it makes a lot of sense why these drugs, ADHD drugs, end up being a gateway into other forms of, of drugs, pharmaceuticals, street drugs, and just a gateway into the mental health system. Because you are now, you are not only experimenting with, uh, with these drugs that act on the brain in a way that we've never studied long-term, but we know that uh, about you're going to have to require additional drugs or higher doses to yield the same result that it initially, you know, provides, you know, provides a person. So I think it's really nefarious, uh, you know, to, to think, to, to talk about it in ways that says, Oh, people who have ADHD are more susceptible to later drug use. Well, I say, no, the people who are more susceptible to later drug use are the ones who are introduced to drugs younger and younger. Yeah. And, and that's a real problem because, you know, so I have a 13 year old son, he was diagnosed ADHD multiple times. Right. And, you know, my wife and I, uh, obviously, um, we're not, there was just no chance. There was no way we were going to do it. And I, and I, I'm very lucky because I, I have a friend who's, 
whose father is in the medical system. And I, I actually asked him about these, these ADHD drugs. And he said exactly what you said. He said, look, the, the human mind is a mystery. We really don't know how it works. And the human brain, like the physical brain, we, we don't even know much about that. And so when you're introducing these pharmaceutical drugs to these young developing minds, you don't know what you're going to end up with. And, you know, in reading the literature, I, I came to realize that like most people go through four or five drugs before they find something that quote unquote works or sedates, right? So you got you to gotta basically break your kid in half multiple times mentally until you get to something where it just sounds like you're, you're creating more of a problem than you're actually solving. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt in, in my mind, we can just look at all the outcomes right now, but you bring up a, a really good point when it comes to, if you, if you brought the most prestigious, well-researched, well, um, a neuroscience expert that exists in the world, right? Whoever that may be, like somebody who is really prominent in their field of neuroscience. And you ask them on a scale of one to 10, how much do we really know about the human brain? They might say ah, two or a three. And then if you ask them about the mysteries of human consciousness and the human experience and human behavior, what do we really know? And they might say, well, even less than that. And, and that's the problem with the, the medical field right now is that there's such a level of, of arrogance when it comes to these diagnoses and these drugs as if they're legitimate and discrete uh, illnesses and that we've really improved how people um, who struggle with focus or hyperactivity or anxiety or depressed mood, whatever you want to call it, that we have some medical advancement that has uh, really improved the human condition. And, and that, that's just not, not true. Um, in, in fact, um, it's very, very clear that once you start any form of a psychiatric drug in time, it's going to increase the susceptibility that you're going to experience that same episode. So it creates often what are episodic conditions and you create more chronic ones. It has negative health effects lot that are just undiscovered, unknown, and certainly not researched. Now, I think it's really fascinating to look at like human metabolism and gut health, which is an important science base for mental health. And what do these drugs do to your gut microbiome? Or if you're going to put, if you're going to take a drug that is targeting serotonin or norepinephrine or dopamine, what happens when you introduce that drug that stops the natural reuptake process into the cell? Does it shut down its natural production? Uh, what happens the longer you take these drugs? What kind of dependency is created and what does it do to affect all other areas of the body? It's a problem with our medical system is we have all these specialists as if the human body is separate, like a car, like the mufflers is separate than you know the brake system. But the human body doesn't work that way. Everything is so integra integrated and beautifully designed, designed to heal, designed to survive, designed to adapt. And we're introducing these chemical compounds, synthetic chemical compounds that are made in a factory. And we're not asking the, the questions like, all right, what are the long-term effects of this? So much of what is being driven about the harms of this is from harmed patients. There's just a large harmed community of psychiatric patients who have really are they're ringing the alarm bell on how they've been treated and what the effect has had on on them and it's turned into what's generally spoken to from the psychiatrist as an anti-psychiatry movement but it's just much more than an anti-psychiatry movement it's a it's a movement that uh you know highlights how the medical field has been corrupted by the pharmaceutical industry to, to disease monger, to fund research that serves their, their products, that buys politicians, influences policy, uh, financially funds the major medical organizations, conducts their own trials, influences what is published. It's an entire sick care system that has destroyed the emotional and physical health of so many in, in Western society. And now we're, we're, we're fighting back and we're reclaiming what actually, what health is going to look like. We're go, you know, it's a, it's an 
interesting movement in my field because it's getting back to a lot of things that are common sense. And that includes how you treat your body, what you put into your body, sun exposure, exercise, uh, meditation, yoga, expanding the idea of how we think about our own experience, the challenges it is to be human, to understand that life is built to, to be challenging. And for us to face those challenges and overcome those challenges are actually really necessary for our growth to think about things through human consciousness and other perspectives, spirituality, the interconnectedness between all of us, what happens to a society that's divided? What happens to a society when they're isolated? What happens to a society that is pushed into this technical world or this technical age, right? Um, there's so many ethical and complex questions that philosophers and psychologists and mental health professionals and medical professionals have to ask before there's interventions that are brought to the general public. People have to be able to consider that what they experience, thoughts, emotions, have really been passed down from generation to generation, even if we think about things from genetically, for a specific purpose. And we don't want to you know, deny the function of emotions or the inner world we can all enter into if we retreat inward into our into our minds and what are the what are our capabilities to be able to transcend and transform emotional suffering emotional pain into something that's growth you mentioned before you know the life of someone who is artistic who is sensitive who is creative you know they we know that people experience their emotions differently some experience their emotions really intensely and what does that drive it can drive uh, incredible art, incredible music, incredible writing. Uh, it, it's necessary to form bonds and relationships. And yeah, we do have to be really, really mindful and very careful about the restricted range in which certain people are going to communicate the, the human experience and what is an illness or what's not an illness or what is a symptom and what's not a symptom. And so there's got to be so much reclaiming of common sense be able to even consider the writings of ancient philosophers and Stoics and think about things cross-culturally and how, how do other cultures uh, approach creating a life of value, uh, creating a life that's worth living. And Western society has just been hijacked so much by you know modern industry that I, I think it's a, it's a great time in history to come together to... Kind of resist a lot of these ideas that have you know hurt us so much over the last few decades. Absolutely, and it's really refreshing to to hear you talk about spiritualism and things that may be outside of the material, because clinicians tend to be very materialistic in their thinking, right? I mean, you have problem solve problem, and we we never really think about what might be underlying the problem, or maybe something metaphysical or intangible that we don't really quite understand, but something that can that can serve that. Now, I, I want to ask you, I mean, now that you brought up spiritualism, I mean, how does how does faith and, and God and meditation and things like that fit into the picture here from a, from a clinical perspective? Yeah, I think it's critically important because, listen, if we're lucky, we're going to live like 90 years to 100 years. Maybe, maybe most people, not even that, the life expectancy keeps decreasing. So the question is, what do you live for? What is your purpose? Because suffering without any meaning is a, is a recipe for emptiness and depression and suicidality. Because what is your what's the purpose of it all? Um, and the further we get away from a collective God, regardless of your religion, that there is something bigger than you, that is something greater than all of us, and the manner in which we treat each other is critically important to a life of value and purpose. Once you get detached from that, you're susceptible. You're susceptible to the nihilistic ideas of an authoritarian who wants to promise you a, a, a better life, a better way of living, a transhumanistic possibility through a, a pharmaceutical, a drug, or who knows what else to try to control you. And that's what we see in kind of the materialistic world of, of Western societies. You know, they're always trying to sell you something. You know, life is better when you wear this clothes, when you have this car, 
when you live this lifestyle. And ultimately, that is going to lead to emptiness. That's never something that is fulfilling to a human being. But love is and connection is and greater purpose and higher wisdom and overcoming challenges. You know, how we look at this journey we call life from multiple perspectives is probably uh, where we need to move uh, closer to when we think about mental health uh, because we're incredibly resilient. You know, think about one of the things I like to say to your clients is just imagine what it has taken for you to be here. You know, every one of your ancestors would have to survive long enough to procreate. And we're talking about war and famine and disease. We're the best of the best physically, right? Mm -hmm. So what's happening now where there's this constant disease mongering and, and fear mongering and that, you know, something's wrong with you with this illness or this potential disease or this potential pandemic. It's all purposeful. So when you lose sight of, you know, your, your greater purpose and the in, inner wisdom that's, I think is within us and we become much more separated. We don't see how we're collectively connected universally. Of course, you're going to suffer because what makes life worth living? Love, family, experiences, mm -hmm. you know, all, all those things make life worth living. If you're going to externalize it and look for something else to try to make you feel better, there's no doubt you're going to be on the path to misery. And even then, even when you have safety and health and family and love and a solid job and, and uh, there's something personal, uh, there's something purposeful in your day, whether it's creativity or it's innovation or you're, you're working with your mind in, in various ways to serve your community. Life is still going to be painful. It's you're going to deal with loss and illness and fear provocation. Life is short. We're all, we're all going to die. Uh, you're going to lose loved ones. You're going to worry about loved ones. All this is normal. And I think it's much more valuable for us to talk about how we can respond to that in life, the inevitable, rather than the, the disease mongering that currently exists. What you're saying is so true. You know, this year um, has been the most transformative year of my life. You know, I, I considered myself an agnostic person for most of my life, you know, and, and this year I had a spiritual reawakening and reestablished my relationship to, to God. And, and I, you know, in, when I think about it, when I really contemplate it, I think a lot of the problems that we're facing in Western society has to do that we've has to do with the fact that we've removed God from the equation. We don't have that commonality between us anymore, right? And it seems like we're. I mean, again, I, I refrain from saying illness because you know, again, as you've pointed out, it's not really a clinical mental illness. A lot of people are dealing with these are. It's like a disconnection that we have. Like we're we're disconnected from the from the big picture, and so a lot of us don't really feel like we have um, much to look forward to or or something on the horizon. You know, I was explaining this a while ago to to a friend of mine who was dealing with some things, and I said, you know, as people, it's important that we have something on the horizon, something we're running toward. You know something that we can stay focused on and work toward because when you remove that it, it seems like there's just nothing left right and you know it can be something small it can be like oh i want to run a 5k and i've never ran a day in my life so i'm going to put that 5k on the horizon and work toward that 5k when i give myself that goal every day every day that i work toward it i'm accomplishing something and i think that's that's for a lot of people they just feel like they're not accomplishing anything like they're just kind of living in the same hamster wheel the same loop that goes over and over and over again. Do, do, do you find that as well, or is there more to it? Yeah, I mean, some of that's the trappings of uh, modern convenience society. When you think about how we've evolved, you know, we not too far. Um, we're not too far removed from, you know, the days where, you know, we grew up in tribes. And in that tribe, we had to hunt for food or forage for food. And we had to support our communities or support the tribe. And, you know, we've evolved that that way. With each day, there was a purpose, even if it was just to survive or to contribute to your to your community. Now, this modern industrial age, and there's kind of a mismatch between what we've been kind of 
evolutionarily designed to live versus the, the modern conveniences of, of living. You know, you you get your food from the grocery store. Um, you know, people can work from home on, on screens. Uh, you know, there's a standard of living that, that does exist that has led to a, a more sedentary lifestyle, less connection with nature, less connection with, with purpose. And that really hasn't served us well. If we look at, you know, if we look at kind of the results of this modern society. And so it's so important that with modern conveniences that you're adding things into in your life for purposeful struggle. Um, you know, whether it's to push yourself with exercise or to the next challenge or to do something that's really fear provoking, you know, to kind of continue to expand your own personal growth. Our mind is so limiting on what we're capable of, of doing. And it's just so easy to get stuck in the rut of a nine to five and to get attached to that supercomputer that's in your pocket that just is purposely engineered to hijack your entire attention or even to fall into a social media world that's that's created uh and not real you know and and so if we're going to continue to move past this period in human development we're going to have to recreate we're going to have to move away from some of these conveniences that uh you know have led to rising rates of obesity and metabolic illness and poor health by relying on a food system of processed food that again, industry uses to hijack your brain, to make you more hungry, to crave their product, but it's really bad for your body. And you know, how, how, we, how's history going to look back at this time? Is it going to be the pathway towards uh, totalitarianism and, uh, you know, the, the destruction of human morality and health, or is it going to be viewed as a period of tremendous transformation where we enhance the human condition through the struggle that we experience now and we learn to support each other and we learn to, to fall back into small communities and uh, continue to express, you know, love for each other, expansion of consciousness and, you know, use the innovation that we have. I mean, just, I, I'm always, um, extreme when I, I'm a history buff in a lot of ways. So I, I just am fascinated by, uh, the creation of, of human beings and how we have just built societies from ruins and from war in order to serve each other. And I don't think there's a path for us unless we are continuing to grow in that sense. Um, and, and, I, I'm just I'm just worried about a lot of the things that are going on internationally, globally, with the World Economic Forum and our response to uh, the COVID pandemic, and you know national uh, sovereignty and borders and culture. You know a lot of that when you start seeing that kind of destruct and populations are divided against each other. You know that's not the best of humanity, and uh, you know we're still collectively creating wars. You know, there's just so much about, uh, you know, our progress that seems, you know, a, a bit, you know, stalted, inhibited. Um, and I just think it's a, it's a time for tremendous transformation. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, I listened to your, your mass formation psychosis episode again, um, this morning and, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a student of history myself and, and the, mass formation that I saw happening during COVID was really reminiscent of the early days of Hitler, right? When Germany kind of galvanized behind him, even though he was clearly this authoritarian psychopath. And the more he took away their rights, the more he restricted their freedom, they, the more they loved him. Like he was some all seeing, you know, protector. And, you know, again, this is kind of going back to the idea of, of, well, when you remove God from the equation, I think human beings, we naturally look to some form of superiority to follow, right? And during COVID, it seemed like Anthony, whoever your God was, right? Anthony Fauci or the World Health Organization or the UN or the World Economic Forum. I don't know anybody dumb enough to follow anything they have to say, but, you know, they seemed these organizations seem to have replaced God on a lot of levels. And, you know, even online, like when you go on, you know, X, for example, 
I'll encounter people who seem to have this like religious devotion to these ideas that have been like, you know, they, they've been disproven over and over and over again. Um, as a as a clinical psychologist, can you speak to the psychology of that? Like, do, do you have an idea of what's going on there? Well, the work of Matthias Desmond, who coined the phrase mass formation psychosis, is that vulnerability that human beings hear in response uh, adhere to uh, in response to free floating anxiety. So it's that provocation of fear. And that that life and death concern that someone might have, and how do they respond to that type of crisis? That authoritarian bias to attach to uh, a leader, regardless if that uh, if that leader is in our best long term interest or not, just out of fear in itself to adhere to the the masses in order for self preservation is that vulnerability that we're all scared of um, because we can walk ourselves down the path towards just being slaves and human beings have been enslaved since the beginning of time uh, from totalitarian fascist uh, tyrannical leaders. And so we are susceptible of that because of our own fear and self-preservation. I think Matthias Desmond says about 70% of the population kind of falls in line in kind of a mass formation psychosis uh, in response to free floating anxiety when authority figures starts implementing rules that will even restrict your own your own freedom. And so maybe that's part of the, the transformation we're talking about in humanity mm -hmm. is transforming from from fear to courage and and love and accepting uh, the limitations of and trappings of, of this world. And when we're only living a short amount of time and people are uh, so connected to the self-preservation of themselves and their bodies, even at the expense of other human beings, uh, you, you can see how it can create that. But when we, when we are more spiritual and we understand that uh, there's so much more than just this life and you believe in, in your soul and the evolution of, of your soul, well, maybe you approach life a little bit differently. Maybe you have the, the courage to stand up against tyranny and authority. And we've seen that again throughout history. The, the strength and the willingness of courageous people to fight against tyranny and enslavement and to continue to evolve and to uh, transform, transform culture for the better. I do believe in the ultimate good of all of us, and we have that capability to do that. That's one of the things we have to find where, you know, where does the tyranny, where does the tyranny begin? You know, when are we uh, voluntarily handing over our own liberty, our own freedom. And that's why medical freedom right now is such a defining moment. Because if you don't choose what goes into your own body, well, then you are not free. You are enslaved. And we see this with the vaccine movement and the COVID vaccine. People were either forced to, to keep their, to lose their jobs if they did not go along with an experimental technology. I don't even call it a vaccine because it uh, it, it sends uh, the, the wrong communication that we have something that stops the transmission of a disease or the obtaining of a disease, because that's how powerful language is, is we think about the word vaccine and, and, and we just automatically associate it with other vaccines throughout history that were proven to be safe and effective. Well, when you're talking about like an mRNA techno technology that has not been studied long term on a human population, People were not told that this is an experiment and they continue to be mass manipulated on the safety and efficacy of it. Same thing with my field. There's no such thing as an antidepressant drug, but you use that word, the power of that language, antidepressant. So if you're feeling depressed, depressed in any state, here is a drug and it's the antidote to that. And so that's part of the, the manipulation of language and how language drives experience. So it's so important for us to question everything. You question, uh, you question what an authority is telling you, and you, we now know you certainly don't accept that as absolute truth. You push your medical professionals, your authority figures, to answer difficult questions. And remember, they work for us. We don't work for them. And there's much more of us than those who are fighting for that power and that influence.
And so maybe it is a collective time where humanity is transforming past fear into into courage. And that 70% that becomes the uh, the overwhelming majority really starts to shrink. And we see that uh, the, uh, the masses become much more courageous and, um, and stand up against tyranny. I, I hope you're right. Because, you know, the, the main concern that I've had is, you know, I'm here doing my podcast, of course, Radically Genuine is a much more larger podcast than mine, one top 1% of global downloads for people who aren't aware. Um, but, you know, People like yourself and me, it feels like we're 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 putting a target on ourselves, right? And it just in doing what we're doing, and and you know, it it does feel like at times that you know this the seventy percent that fit within that that box are 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 just going to keep going along. But I I do think you're right. I think that that percentage is breaking down, and really what we got to do is just kind of keep fracturing, keep breaking, keep breaking, keep breaking, and just try to pull people out of that. Like psychosis, really, that trance that they're in, because, you know, I mean, it's at the height of the vaccine rollout, it really felt like I I, I honestly, I, I felt like I was living in an alternate dimension. It was astounding to me how many people were just putting this in their bodies without really questioning anything, without really even bothering to read any of the, the you know, the this information that was readily available, right? And now in retrospect, we know that it's just a I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even call it a, a catastrophe. It's a tragedy. You know, we're seeing all sorts of, I mean, I was just reading the other day, they're start, now they're acknowledging the existence of turbo cancers, which just six months ago to say the word turbo cancer was put you in like QAnon Pizzagate territory where everybody thought you were nuts. And now that, yeah. you know, Pfizer, what do you know? They've got a drug coming out to to treat turbo cancers of all things. And so I want to pivot to the antidepressant thing again, because you brought up something um, that I want to explore a little bit uh, in a different context. Um, you know, we've seen this rise in, in school shootings and, and mass shootings over the years here. And, you know, everybody, whenever they happen, everybody always points to psychotropic drugs, right? Like what drugs is he on? What drugs is he on? And, you know, it's it's very hard to get clinicians to actually speak out about this, the correlation between antidepressants and mass shootings. Um, is, is there any data that that kind of shows the correlation and, and is there more to it than than what we know? Jason, if you if a person just takes one antidepressant drug, there is an increased rate of violence against self or others. And this is a scientific fact that regulatory agencies from governments around the world have issued their warnings for an antidepressant. There's a black box warning, uh, for suicide. And there's more, at least a double risk of a, of a suicide event for a person who takes a antidepressant drug in clinical reality. Some of the work that's going on there by practicing psychiatrists, we're seeing that there are young people under the age of 25 with developing brains being placed on three, four, five, upwards of 10 different psychiatric drugs. Remember, there is no study of two psychiatric drugs together. They are doing this off-label in an experimental way, usually to try to induce some sort of sedation. But everyone's different, and everyone's biology is different. So for some, for some this, uh, and I think it has a lot to do with how they metabolize the drug, these drugs can induce agitation, akathisia, psychosis, delusions, violence. And so it's a very real problem and it shouldn't surprise anybody. Once you take drugs that act on the brain and impact um, your mind and your mood, there's an altering effect. Uh, it shouldn't surprise anyone when someone acts outside the bounds of what is typical for them. Yes, we have an increase in in violent acts and gun violence since we start introdu mass introducing psychiatric drugs to the general population. It's a real legitimate problem. And of course it's not being spoken about. Um, you know the power of the pharmaceutical agencies in this uh, in this country. You know the, the role and influence they have over policy and funding politicians' careers, their campaigns. So this is something that is not going to be mainstream news, especially with the with the major media companies being 
pretty much owned by their advertising dollars, right? And I'm just concerned that, um, you know, the the, the violence that ha that is a consequence of these drugs is also used again to take away more liberty and more freedom from uh, from American people. Gun control, uh, you know, is is one of them. They turn it into a gun control issue, not looking at you know what is driving somebody to act in such a, you know, a, a heinous, uh, homicidal way. And so you've mentioned, uh, you know, a couple people come on my podcast. Listen, it's it's just very well known um, that you can take this drug and you can start having hallucinations, uh, auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, delusions in ways that you've never experienced that before. Because these drugs are handed out to people who have no history of any mental health problems, and then they start reporting these exact symptoms, we know clearly that these drugs do induce violence, mania, and a, and a host of other problems. So, yeah, it's it's a legitimate problem. Um, but again, if not, pe if people aren't speaking out against it, if our doctors aren't informed, then the people aren't going to be informed. Yeah, I, you know, I was when I went through what I went through, I was in my early 20s and it just kind of hit me out of nowhere. And, and you know, I was dealing with a lot of things in my life at the time. And I, when, when I was going through like the depths of my anxiety problems, my body would simulate heart attacks. That's how powerful the mind is, right, mm -hmm. is that. Yeah. I would have the chest pains. I'd have the shooting pain in my arm. I'd be sweating. I must have went to the emergency room thirty times that during that that two or three month period that I was going through that. And you know, the doctors would hook me up to an ECG and hey, you're fine and and get you know get rid of me. And then there was one doctor that prescribed me antidepressants, and I didn't take them because I was just with every person that I've ever known who's on any antidepressants, it's like the antidepressants make them more miserable. You know, it's like they're, they're sold this one size fits all, uh, you know, solution to their problem. And then it's uh, the solution seems to kind of exacerbate the problem even more in, in some circumstances. Right. So I had a doctor the last time I was in there and he was just straight up kind of like you He sat me down and was like, listen, this is going on inside of your mind. Nobody can help you with this. And as much as I want to help you as a doctor, I can't because this is something that your mind is doing to you. You have to figure this out on your own. And he said, look, here's what I'll do. I'll write you a prescription for Ativan, but do not take them unless you absolutely, like, absolutely cannot live without it. He said, because I don't want you to hurt yourself and I don't want you to hurt anybody else. But I'm telling you, this is something you have to tackle on your own. And if you start taking pills, you will never get off the pills. You will become reliant on them for the rest of your life because they're a Band-Aid. They're not a solution, right? And sorry, you go. did you have something you want to add there? No, that's a great doctor. You know, we don't hear enough of doctors who are going to clearly state it in such an honest and genuine way. So that's actually nice, nice to hear because most of the time, you know, our medical professionals aren't honestly and openly communicating how problematic these drugs are or willing to say that to their their patients because what you are experiencing is are it's panic attacks panic disorder yep. yes the the mind can do that uh it can make you feel like you're dying uh that's the stress response system and that's real right the body is reacting to perceived threat and if you believe you're having a heart attack well you're going to be anxious and stressed if you believe that the doctors are missing something and you're about to die and you have a young family or whatever that may be. Yes, it's a lot, a lot of stress and it's very anxiety provoking. But panic attacks are really treatable. Um, you know, you can you can go into a good therapy and understand kind of the stress that exists in your life. Learn how to respond to what is happening internally in your mind, how to soothe and calm the body. And, uh, and panic attacks can be short term. They're just highly, highly treatable. Unfortunately, we're having... Doctors giving the quick fix, the Xanax or the Ativan, and then getting hooked on those drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, you develop what's called rebound anxiety. You get kind of a, uh, dependent on that drug after like 14 days. Uh, and I, I know people have been on it for years, right? And just as we talked about how the brain adapts. So it might work initially. They're powerful drugs. Then you need more and more and more of it. And your body's getting anxious because it wants the substance. And now you have... Worse problems than when you started. Now you have a substance dependence problem amongst other things, right? And that's the path that we see too many go down when they had a very kind of treatable 
anxiety problem that could have been helped with the right person. Absolutely. And I, I, I think I'm so thankful for that doctor because nobody was willing to help me and I didn't know who to talk to. And, you know, being in, being a creative person, I didn't want to take any of those drugs because I didn't want to do take anything that was going to take away my sensitivity. You know, like for me, when I write, it has to burn. Oh, that's the way I describe it is like, it's like a burning feeling and that's what generates the creativity. Right. And I didn't want to put that fire out. So, um, this last year, I, I I got into meditation quite a bit um, as, as a means of uh, dealing with my own stress. And you've mentioned meditation a couple of times in our conversation here. And, and I want to ask you as a clinical psychologist, like what what benefits does meditation have for people who are dealing with high levels of stress and anxiety? Yeah, I mean, the benefits are substantial. Um, a lot of what we suffer with is not anything that's really externally going on. We, we suffer with what is happening internally. So the, the mind has the ability to create threat. The mind can worry. We can get caught up in our, in our heads. Uh, what's the difference between uh, a human being and like a zebra, right? A zebra can be sitting at the watering hole, chilling out, eating grass. And once the lion comes, boom, they are... You know, they're pushed into action and uh, they have to flee and they have to run. And as soon as that threat's over, they return right back to the watering hole, not the human mind. The human mind can go back into the past. It can suffer all over again. You can go back and you can look at your life and look at the most horrible and embarrassing events of your life and you can get stuck there. The mind can project into the future. It can create an entire eternal reality. And we do create our realities and we live there. And until we have the ability to be able to observe that and to bring it back to the eternal now, the moment that exists, the ability to quiet our mind, then the body is not going to relax. The body is not going to be at a sense of peace, not if the mind is suffering. And so, yes, from uh, you know managing stress, blood pressure, everything that's related to stress, high blood pressure, um, you know, elevated heart rate, cortisol, inflammation, uh, the you know the mental health struggles of anxiety and, and depression can be conceptualized as a as a craving and a, and a suffering that exists within our own minds. We do have to learn how to quiet the mind, and meditation is centuries and centuries old. Right, um, some of the greatest uh, cultures and spiritual masters, you know, have, have taught this as a way of being connected and closer to God and closer to uh, the universe. And once you learn how to do it, uh, it, it becomes something that you can't live without. You actually really actually crave that period of time where you're in, in a quiet space. Um, and it just feels so good because living in modern society, we are so distracted and uh, it's so easy to be on the go all the time and for our minds to be working so fast. So I say, like, if, if meditation is really hard for you to do, well, then you should really be doing meditation because that's a good indicator that your mind is always working. It could affect so many aspects of your health and your mental health. Sleep's another big one. You know, sleep is so, so powerful and meaningful to how well we feel. And, you know, if your mind's working, if you're thinking about and uh, working on everything that you kind of went through during the day, or it's going back in the past, and now it's worried about tomorrow, you know, the next threat, the next thing that could go wrong, the things you have to do, the to-do list. Well, your body's going to be activated, and we can't sleep if we are working. and We can work in our own minds. So I, I can't even begin to emphasize how important meditative practice is in our overall health. And there's so many options that exist right now. One of the things I'm doing is called heart math. Uh, heart math is... Uh, there's hundreds of peer-reviewed journals on, on it, but it's just, it's hooking up a sensor that's measuring your heart rate variability. And it's just doing some breath work and some meditative practice to align your heart rate. And so heart rate variability is associated with uh, physical illness and poor mental health, whether when you have your heart rate uh, more aligned, then it's, it's um, associated with improved performance, mood, and so many other variables, including sleep. So uh, I think we can utilize that science, that technology, and you're combining it with like ancient wisdom 
to really improve your your well-being and, and your life. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time. You know, one of the things I'm looking for in my life is what can I do that gives me the greatest benefits in the shortest amount of time because I'm very, very busy. And so sometimes just taking five minutes to do the focused breathing and to align my heart rate and to feel just really connected, it just alters everything about my, uh, my day. Um, if I need to write myself, doing that, going on a podcast before a session, you know, just sitting back, connecting with my breath, reminding myself to be present in the now gets me out of my head. It's really, really powerful. Yes. And it's worked wonders for me. And uh, Dr. McFillin, I know that you have uh, other things that you have to get to. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you get out of here, but um, I just want to personally say thank you for everything that you're doing. You know, you're, you're one of my favorite follows on X. Uh, your tweets have become kind of like daily affirmations for me. It's mm -hmm. basically, there's nothing wrong with you. Get your shit together. That's at least the way I interpret it. So, um, but uh, Dr. McFillin, can you tell everybody where they can find you? Sure. Uh, you can find me at drmcfillin.com and you can sign up for my Substack there as well as connect with our other socials. Uh, I'm on X at Dr. McFillin, uh, YouTube at Radically Genuine, on Instagram at Radically Genuine. And of course, uh, the Radically Genuine podcast. Uh, you can find that on any of your, wherever you find your podcast. Again, we're in the top 1% of global downloads. I think we have some really cool, interesting guests that we have lined up for the future and uh you know, have some great episodes i've learned a lot throughout doing the podcast just from you know connecting with other experts and i, I think we're sharing information that's not necessarily mainstream yet unfortunately and, and uh it, you know if you can listen to the podcast and, and and share it i've been told that it saved lives it's kept people out of the system off drugs and making horrible decisions in, the, in their mental health because they just have more information and I think we expand the conversation. We're talking about a lot of interesting things about society and, and culture. It's, it is worth the time. I've become a devout listener ever since every, I had a handful of people tell me I needed to start listening. I did, and I, I'm completely captured by it. So I encourage everybody out there, go out there and follow the Radi Radically Genuine podcast. I listen to it almost daily. Um, Dr. McFillin, again, thank you so much for your time. I, I didn't even get to a, a topic I really wanted to cover. So I hope I can have you back in the future. And uh, I really want to talk to you about cannabis and psilocybin as alternatives, both pros and cons, because there's a lot of people who think all of the secrets to, to, to life are there. And there's a lot of people who think it's just craziness. So I would really like to get your perspective on that. But, but we'll save that for the next one. I'll be happy to join again. Awesome. Thank you, sir.